We come this morning in our exposition of this epistle to the Hebrews, to chapter 9, and we'll be taking as our text verses 6 to 10. So our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 to 10. We just read the entire chapter together. Let me just point out to you verse 8, which says, The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as, this, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. The title of our sermon is The Way into the Holiest. We sing in many places throughout the Psalms, and we read both in the Pentateuch and in the Prophets this recurring question, Who is like unto thee? Who is like unto thee? And the answer forever and always is none. There is none like unto the Lord. We can ransack the heavens. We can uncover everything in the cosmos here below. And there is nothing, no one, nowhere that is to be compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone has that surpassing glory and superiority over all others. He is infinitely incomparable and surpasses all else. And the book of Hebrews takes us and drops us into the deep end of that whole thought. We have throughout the entire book the unfolding of this supremacy, this superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is inexhaustible, and we have a sense of that as we're reading and meditating our way through uh, this epistle. We, we become conscious. It's impossible. Every, every page we turn, every verse we read, there are new disclosures of the light of his glory. And we are being invited in Hebrews to taste it. We actually can taste and, and actually see something of the glory that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, simultaneously, we have a sense that we, we know but a little of it, that we are catching glimpses, exquisite glimpses, but that there is far more for us to see than we can ever in our finite beings drink in or, or take in. And one of the ways in which this is brought to the fore in the book of Hebrews is by setting Christ in contrast to the Old Testament ceremonial system. And it's first and foremost in order to show us Christ's superiority, but also by way, of con uh, by way of consequence, it's coming to that first audience and to us now to show us that, that the, the, the scaffolding and superstructure of that o Old Testament ceremonial system was divinely appointed and intended to be temporary that it was a shadow, and that we were, our Old Testament fathers were walking in shadows, they were peering through shadows, but that in the coming of Jesus Christ, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the shadows, the types, the symbols, the pictures, all of that, the service of all of that is complete, it's done, and it is put away because it has been surpassed by something infinitely greater in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've been seeing that. We saw in chapter 7 most recently, we saw in chapter 7 the superiority of Christ's priestly office, that his office as distinguished from the office of Aaron and his descendants is so much greater. We saw in chapter 8 that the tabernacle which has been established now in the heavens where our high priest ministers, in the very heavens themselves, is far superior to the earthly tent that was erected and taken down and moved and erected again, and so on and so forth, that our sanctuary is in heaven itself. And here, uh, we also saw that, that all of that uh, points to the fact that in the new covenant, we have something superior to all that is found in the old covenant. Chapter 9, then, we come to chapter 9, and we move really from, from the tabernacle, per se, to the service the use of that tabernacle, the services that were carried out uh, within 
the tabernacle, if you will. In other words, the sacrifices and all that that, that entailed and how it also points to the glory of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in our previous section, we were looking last Lord's Day at verses 1 to 5. Uh, attention was being drawn to some of these details, that is, the elements of the Old Testament ceremonies within, inside the tabernacle, right? There we saw that there's the first compartment and the second compartment. The first was the larger room, which is the holy place, and then the second is the smaller room, the, the, the holy of holies, in which was found the ark and the mercy seat over it, the cherubim, and so on. So we were looking last Lord's Day at some of the, the drama that unfolds in terms of the service that takes place there. But he comes to the end of chapter 5 and he says, uh, excuse me, the end of verse 5 and says, of which we cannot now speak in partic particularly. In other words, I'm not going to list off all of the details for you. And we're not going to sit and break open all of those details for you here. He's driving forward, the Apostle Paul. He's driving forward at, uh, at something else. He wants, he wants that to serve as a springboard to something greater and bringing us to Christ. So our theme this morning is the, the way into the holiest. And we are going to note this under three things. So as we seek with God's help to unpack verses 6 to 10, we'll note three things. First of all, the way is closed. So first of all, the way is closed. The way into the holiest is closed. Verse 6. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. The way is closed. And now you'll see how this is the case in just a minute. But we're speaking now about restricted access, if you will. Restricted access into the very inner sanctum of God's uh, holy presence. And you know what this, this is like. I mean, you can go into a bank and there's a vault and it's closed and it's thick, heavy door and there's all sorts of crazy um, um, locks and technology that keeps people from being able to penetrate, to get inside uh, that vault. Or you can go to various places. I had a friend who was an epidemiologist when I was living in Atlanta and he, he worked for the CDC and he took me for a tour Right, but then there was a section of the CDC, level four or whatever it was, and there was no access. Right? You, you couldn't only select people could, could get into, into that section where they keep all the crazy, dangerous stuff and so on and so forth. Or you think even in your day-to-day -day experience, you can go online and, and there'll be a password required. Right? There's no access to that particular page without a, a password. So we, we know this idea of of restricted access. And that's what's being set forth here in verse 6. The way is closed. Notice what it says. He says that ordinances have been appointed. We have saw those in verses uh, one, 1 to 5. So the Lord is, first of all, given by divine appointment a pattern. He says this is what it's supposed to look like. This is what it's supposed to be comprised of. Here's what goes inside. Here's the furniture and the design and details and all of that. That comes first. Then following that comes the service, what they do with it, how they use it, which is also by uh, divine appointment. And I, I point that out just to note this is the way the Lord always works, right? He gives us, he supplies us with ordinances. We don't, we don't supply ordinances. We don't fabricate. We don't use human ingenuity or creativity to come up with ordinances of worship. We receive from God what he himself has appointed to us. And then he, having prescribed it and commanded it, he then calls us to take up and use those ordinances for his glory and the edification of our souls. And so it says in verse 6, now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. And so it's saying they went always, they went continually, if you will. They went constantly, and so the priests were daily going into that first room, that first compartment, where the, show, the table of showbread was, and where the candlestick was, and where the golden altar of incense was, and so on. They were, they were in there constantly, morning sacrifice, evening sacrifice. They were daily engaged in that. They had to go in and dress the lamps, and trim the wicks, and fill the oil for the lampstand stand. 
and so on. They had to go to the golden altar and, and offer the incense that was placed upon the coals taken from the burnt offering on that altar. And they did this morning and evening, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, in perpetuity, without break, without any, any break. Right? So every single solitary day, there's this, there's this rhythm that's taking place within the life of Israel as a whole in connection with the tabernacle and all that is transpiring uh, inside it. And then there, they, of course, had weekly responsibilities. So, for example, on the Sabbath day, they would change out the showbread that was on the table. That only took place on the first day of the week. And so we're told the priests went always into the first tabernacle, that first compartment, accomplishing the service of God. And even here, we can already break, can't we? We can already begin to feel how the, the dots are taking shape and connecting in terms of their their place in our own heart and in, in your your own life. Because what does the Lord say? All of that's done. We have the we have the reality. But in a sense that those same sorts of patterns carry over with continuity. Because you open your New Testament and we're told that we are to be giving thanks always. That we're to be constantly engaged. It's day to day, hour to hour even, week to week, month to month, year to year. There's this perpetual offering of thanksgiving to the Lord. What Hebrews later calls a spiritual sacrifice uh, to the Lord. Or we're told in the New Testament that we are to rejoice evermore, that we are to constantly be engaging and exercising our souls with joy in the Lord himself, intermittent, not intermittently, but constantly. We're told that we are to be praying without ceasing. So you had that golden altar uh, with the incense, which was a picture of the prayers being offered uh, before the ark, separated by the veil, but offered up before the Lord as a sweet-smelling savor in his sight. The prayers were a sweet-smelling savor because they were accompanied by the sacrifice, right? All of this is picturing in very graphic, colorful ways what is the daily experience of the New Testament Christian. That as we come before the Lord continually, praying without ceasing, our prayers are being offered and perfumed by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and made acceptable and rising before the very throne. The ark was a throne, now before the throne, the throne in heaven, to be received with acceptance before the Lord. And that even those rhythms, you know, in our, in our churches, our context, it is customary for us to have family worship morning and evening. Right? The bookends of the day, the family gathers to worship God, the most direct act of glorifying him. And to, to him in our days, as it were, with morning and evening worship. Well, you see, that pattern has been always there. It was there in the Old Testament uh, as well. And so these things are all being brought to, to our attention. But what else did they see? Right, I've mentioned some of the easily recognizable things that would have been constantly before them in their service that they were, as the text says, always carrying out. But what else did they see? Well, at the west end of that, that room, that, uh, that the holy place, the first compartment, there were four golden pillars and there were solid gold hooks. And from those hooks hung a veil. And that veil was heavy. That veil was, was thick. It was the veil separating the first room from the second. Separating uh, them from the holy of holies itself. And so here's this heavy, thick curtain, if you will. And we're told that it was, it was, it was made with fine-twined linen. We're told that it was blue and scarlet and purple. And that all of these were beautifully woven together into an intricate uh, fabric. And that in addition to the, bl the, 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 the blue and the scarlet and, and the purple, there were also embroidered cherubims over the face of this 
curtain or, or veil. And so there they would be daily, constantly. They're coming into this holy place and they're, they have the business with the lamps and all the other things that are happening with the golden incense. But that light from the lamps is illuminating the room. It's the only light in there. There's no windows, as you'll remember from last week. And that light is going to be shining upon the veil. And so that, that thick fabric is there and it is illuminated by the light of, of the candlestick. And what effect would that have had upon the priest? Think of it. What effect would it have had? They would have been faced with a daily reminder that there is no access. That there is no access for them into God's immediate presence. As they stood before the golden altar of incense, their face would have been, had immediately before it, this giant message, no way into the holiest place. No way, no access. The way is closed off, as I say in this first point. There was a barrier. Now, there are so many details that we could highlight here. And I would encourage you, you know, for so many believers, you, you come to that section in the latter part of the book of Exodus, chapter 25 and following, and there's all this intricate detail about the tabernacle, its construction, its parts, its service, all that sort of stuff. And people, people tend to kind of, their, their mind goes numb, and we, we kind of read over it, and we, we think, well, you know, when are we going to get to the, the next things? And people kind of just scurry over the top of those things. I would encourage you to stop. You need to slow down. You need to read reflectively. You need to read with meditation. You need to come to those portions and ask questions. What's going on? Why was this done? Why did God appoint it this way? What, what, what's behind this, right? We have to come with questions to the text and reflect upon it and meditate upon it. And when you do, what ends up happening is, all these vistas of glory begin to open up and it's exhilarating as you begin to as you begin to connect those details with all that is fulfilled in the person of of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning I just want to highlight one that I think is directly related to our text here in verse 6. One that I don't recall before this week having had stood out to me at least in the way that it stood out to me in my studies this week. So we're speaking about this veil. Now, you know that, you know, the superstition at large, right? The idea of people praying toward the east. And so you have the sun worshipers, they pray toward the east. You have, you know, Hindus and all sorts of other religions that pray uh, toward the east. Corrupt forms of Christianity, both Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, they pray toward the east. They build their cathedrals facing east so that the altar is on the east end, so that the people are praying toward the east. And we could go on and on. Islam, you know, they pray toward Mecca and whatnot. This is all superstitious nonsense. It's superstitious nonsense. In the new covenant, the Lord's people do not pray toward the north or the south or the east or the west. Where do we pray? We pray up. Because our sanctuary is in heaven and the throne upon which our high priest sits is in heaven. And so we don't pray horizontally north, south, east, or west. The prayers of God's people in the new covenant, what's accentuated is that our prayers are going straight up. I lift mine eyes up, right? Isn't that the language that's even put in our mouths in the book of Psalms? We lift up our eyes unto the Lord. It's up. That's the direction of, of the New Testament prayers because our sanctuary is in heaven. But in the old covenant, under that ceremonial system, things were different in, in terms of the ceremonial structures, and we've been noting that, right? The symbolism of, of the Old Covenant. And it's interesting that as you begin to put the pieces together with regards to this, what do we see? The, the tabernacle was situated, every time it was set up, it was situated with the Holy of Holies on the West End. So the Holy of Holies, that inner sanctum, was always erected, set up, on the west end, facing the west. 
You say, okay, you begin to ask questions. What's happening here? And what you discover is that all of the movement was westward. They came through into the outer court and they're moving west. And the first thing they see is that, that, that brazen altar where the picture of the cross, of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so on and so forth. It's on the far side of that that you have the tabernacle itself. And they enter heading west into that first room. And the direction in, in all, the flow of movement is all westward, really start to end. And so as they gathered for the morning sacrifice, the sun rose up to their backs. The sun was to their backs. And it's, it's almost as if the sun itself is shining, you know, westward in the direction of the Lord. It's as if the sun itself is bowing down before the symbol of God's presence in, in the inner sanctuary and, and so on. But you think with me about what's being said in verse 6, right? They're busy in this first tabernacle, in the first compartment, they're busy. They've been heading westward all morning. But then, uh, as they continue to head westward, that movement comes to an abrupt stop before the veil. At the veil, they stop. There with the altar of incense. There they are cut off and they can move no further. And one of the things that I think should stand out to us here when we're putting all of the pieces together is this. Let's go back for a second to an earlier time. Let's go all the way back to the very beginning. There is Adam and Eve in the garden. They sin. And as a result of that sin, we have the great expulsion. And so they are driven out of the presence of God. And we are told in Genesis 3 that they are driven eastward. They're driven out of the east side of the garden. And that there, the Lord sets a cherubim with a flaming sword at that gate, preventing access, saying there is no way into my presence. And so they were prohibited, right? There was a barrier. They could not come back into Eden into walking with the Lord in the cool of the day, and so on and so forth. The expulsion drives them out. What happens? The Lord comes, and in the gospel, he reverses that direction. And so when he comes with the promise of the gospel, initially in Genesis 3.15, and then begins to pull that and open that up and, full, and, and cause that, that little bud to to, to bloom and for all of the layers and color and fragrance to, to open up for us when he comes in the days of Moses and gives us all of the ceremonial system, which is filled to the brim with gospel content, what does the Lord do? He reverses the direction. He's showing, if you will, very vividly, the way back to God through redemption, through the redemption that he himself provides the way back to God through the sacrifice that must be offered for sin. And they come westward into that outer court to that sacrifice, that altar. And they come from there into, through the base, and then th into, the, into the, that first room. And they reach the curtain. They reach the veil. They stand before the Holy of Holies. And what do they see? they see cherubim, cherubim on that curtain. How reminiscent of the reminder. That curtain is in many ways parallel to the cherubim that was set at the east gate of, of, of Eden, saying, no access. There's no way in. The priests were crashing, as it were, into the wall of reality, that their sins and the sins of God's people had separated them from God. The way was closed. That's first of all. But then secondly, the way opened. Verse 7. The way opened. But into the second, that is the second room. But into the second went the high priest alone. Once every year. Not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs 
of the people. So here is the second. This is the holy of holies. This is the innermost sanctum. This is where the ark is. This is where the mercy seat is. This is the throne of the, the image of the throne of God, of the presence of God in the midst of his people. Remember when they camped, all of the tribes were arranged around the tabernacle. The tabernacle is dead center. And at the heart of that tabernacle is the ark in the holy of holies. God dwelling in the midst of his own people. And we're told in verse 7 that there was only one man on one day, one time of a year that went into that room. And it's what we call the Day of Atonement. It's, what, it's why we read from Leviticus chapter 16. It was on the Day of Atonement that one man, the, the high priest alone, and one day, this day, the Day of Atonement, once a year. In fact, we're told in that Leviticus 16 passage that all of the other priests who ordinarily would be going into the first compartment are all cast out. They're driven out so that no one, not another living soul, no, no other man or person is allowed to be in the tabernacle. The entire tabernacle is empty except for this one man, the high priest. Only he entered and he entered alone as the representative of the people of God. And the ceremony that's described there is very interesting because we're told that he, he derobed, right? He, he had to take off those beautiful, exquisite, ceremonially significant garments of which we read about in the book of Leviticus. All that had to come off. All of that came off and it was replaced with a plain linen garment. And having donned that plain linen garment, only then would he go in, as we heard last week with the golden censer, and as we hear in this, in the, this week in this text, also with blood. But notice, there is no glory but God's glory in his presence. He went in clothed with plainness. The Lord alone has all of the glory. Interesting in other ways, which we can't develop now. Major rabbit trail. But how this plays out even in the New Testament. All glory is covered in the New Testament. Except for the glory of the Lord himself. So he's, he's prepared. How is it? that this high priest is permitted access. How is it that this high priest is permitted access? Well, you know that it's a curtain. So I'm speaking metaphorically now. There's not a door there. A door is in a hard door, like a wooden door that we would think of. But there is a key that was given in order for the high priest to open and pass through that door, if you will. A key was given that opened the door that enabled him to enter in. That key was blood. It was blood. It was blood that enabled him to enter in because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And from the time of Adam, with the sacrifice of the beast whose, whose skin clothed him and his wife, from the time of Cain and Abel, all the way through to the time of, of Moses, blood was shed for sin. Blood was shed for sin. In the case of this high priest on the Day of Atonement, fresh blood. It wasn't good enough for blood to have been shed on a previous occasion, but it was fresh blood that was shed each time. That blood represented something, didn't it? It represented a sacrifice, an animal that had been slain. And that sacrifice represented something. It represented atonement. It represented the atonement of sin, right? The expiation of the guilt of sin. It represented the fact that there was a propitiation, that, that the, the wrath of God was being satisfied and pacified and appeased through the atoning sacrifice. The sacrifice atonement represented the cleansing and purification from all uncleanness and defilement and the stains of sin and so on and so forth. That's what's represented. It's 
atoning blood that we're speaking about here. Sacrificial blood that we're speaking about. And the sacrifice that was made at the picture of the cross, at that, at that bronze, uh, bronze altar, the blood was scooped up, it was captured, and it was carried. And the high priest took that blood and passed through the veil and carried it into the Holy of Holies, before the ark, before the throne of God. And it was sprinkled upon the mercy seat. And it was sprinkled upon the ark. And it was sprinkled at the base of the ark. And so on. And as we noted last week, the sacrifice is not made or is not made there. The sacrifice is made back at the cross, back at the altar. But the blood is being presented there, presented before the very throne of God. It's being presented. Why? Because what's being sanctified here is the acceptance before God. The acceptance of sacrifice, the acceptance of atonement, the acceptance of the blood before the Lord himself. And so here's the priest. He has to do this two rounds, you'll have noted in Leviticus 16. He has to do it for himself and his household. He is a sinner himself. And so the slaying of the bullock and the, the goat with the sin offering, that blood has to be carried in for him. And then having been accepted on his behalf, he then makes sacrifice for the people. And then that blood is brought in and presented for the people as well. It says for, in our text here, for the heirs of the people. That means all of their sins. You know, in the Old Testament, the Lord made provision for sins of ignorance. Sins that were committed in ignorance. Sins that were unwittingly done, not deliberately done. You know, there's so many in our own day and age who think to themselves, well, I didn't know that was wrong. I didn't know that God's law forbid X, Y, or Z. I didn't know that this was a transgression. And they say that thinking to themselves, I'm off the hook because I didn't know. And the fact is, you're on the hook more than ever. Because God in his law makes clear that sins done, which you didn't know were sins, are sins that have to be atoned for and are therefore an affront to God, a provocation before God. Or if a person says, well, I knew it was wrong, but I didn't realize I did it or, or whatever else, right? These sorts of sins of ignorance are no excuse in any age because all sin is sin and all sin deserves damnation. All sin must be atoned for. And so we're told that he had to atone for all of the errors, all of the sins of, of all of the Lord's people. This is a graphic picture, a graphic picture of what, what is ultimately fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary, at Golgotha, at the cross. Here is, here is the high priest of all high priests offering a sacrifice in offering himself as the sacrifice for sin. And it is slain. He is slain as a substitute on behalf of his people. But it doesn't stop there, does it? He dies. He's buried. He's re resurrected. He ascends into heaven. And to remind you, as we saw last week, <clears throat> and I've seen previously, this tabernacle is a microcosm of heaven. The Lord took the real thing, which is heaven, and then he created a model, which was the tabernacle, to represent that reality. So the Lord Jesus Christ ascends into heaven as the Lamb of God who was sacrificed on behalf of his people. And the resurrection demonstrates God's divine acceptance of his sacrifice. And the, at the ascension, he presents himself before the throne. He presents, as it were, his blood before the very throne of God, and it is accepted by God on behalf of his people. This is what's taking place here. This is the drama that is unfolding here. And the Old Testament believers, many of them were looking through the shadows. They could see. They were actually exercising faith in the Messiah to come. We know that because Jesus tells us in John 8, Abraham saw my day 
and rejoiced to see it. Right? We know it from later on in Hebrews as well. We've seen it some already in Hebrews. They could see this. They recognized that this, is, that this was a picture book that was pointing to something better. You get it in Psalm 51 when you're singing through that, that hymn of, of repentance. David comes toward the end and he says, verse 16, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. See the same thing in Psalm 50 and other places. Right? This is showing to us the way opened. The way that is opened into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, into acceptance before him. So that our persons are accepted before him. So that our service of worship is accepted before him. So that our life of devotion is accepted before him. All because of the blood which sprinkles. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the key. And so the Lord has thrown open, as it were, the doors of heaven for his believing people. And he enables us to come, as we saw earlier in Hebrews, boldly to the throne of grace. We have open access to come before the throne in our time of need as a throne of grace to pour out absolutely everything before one who is not untouched by the feeling of our infirmities but who with sympathy and compassion intercedes for us. We are able now in our worship publicly this morning, now in our private prayers before the Lord, we are able to come into that heavenly sanctuary, into the throne room itself through the blood of Jesus Christ. But what a day it'll be on that last day, will it not? At death, of course, our souls are perfected in holiness. And we are brought into the place that Christ has gone to prepare for us. So that death, our souls are given entrance into the very throne room and presence of God himself. What glory that is. But at the resurrection, at the second coming of the Lord Jesus, you have a resurrected body and for the believer, a perfected soul, a whole person redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And we are able to sing as we do echoing as it were Christ. You know, we, we sing in Psalm 24, lift up your gates, you heads, lift up ye everlasting doors that the King of glory may come in, right? This is a picture when we're singing of Psalm 24 of the ascension of Jesus Christ, who is ascending above the highest heavens to the right hand of the majesty on high. Everything parts the angelic host as he is brought into his place of prestige, but he does not go as head alone. He carries in his train all of the members of his body so that we can think in terms of us on the, at the resurrection day, part leaving the throne of judgment with gates that are flung wide open in order to be given access, as it were, into the eternal holy of holies where we will be forever with the Lord. Glory. That, my friends, is glory. That is, that is the epitome of glory. There is nothing that excels that, nothing that can outstrip that, nothing that can touch that. And all of this given to us in the bloodletting of the Lamb of God as the atoning sacrifice for sin. And we could say so much more, but we must hasten on. Thirdly, the way anticipated, the way closed, the way opened, the way anticipated, 8, 9, and 10. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. While at the first tabernacle, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them, until the time of Reformation. This is the way this, this Old Testimony, uh, Old Testament um, ceremonial service in the tabernacle was the way anticipated. He says it was not then yet made manifest. That it was only, that tabernacle was only a figure. That is, it was a, it was a picture for the time to come until the time of Reformation, right? That was a figure of heaven, 
of the true holy of holies, the, the dwelling place of the eternal God. And it was it stood until the time of Reformation. The Lord provided in the Old Testament what would be what prefigured the reality that comes to fruition in the New Testament. The time of Reformation is the coming of Jesus Christ and the fulfilling of all of that ceremonial law. And so he says it was imposed. It was a burden. Literally, it's a burden or a weight that is laid upon them. This ceremonial superstructure with all of its detail and steps and intricacies and hardships and difficulty and so on. It was a burden that was laid on them for the present time. In doing so, the Holy Ghost was signifying. He was showing something. He was showing even then that it was only temporary. Everything else we read in chapter 9 makes that clear. He shows one example after another after another how the institutions themselves prove that they were only temporary. That that temporary nature was built into God's design from the beginning. The Holy Spirit is signifying all of these things. Verse 9, these ceremonies only dealt with ceremonial and symbolic cleanness or cleanliness. Verse 10, they dealt with outward types of cleanliness, which were useful. They were means. The, the believing Israelite could use them as a means through which, a window through which they would look to see something of the coming of the person and work of Jesus Christ and exercise their faith in him in anticipation of him, but they were only outward, right? They, as, as Paul says here, these things in and of themselves, they could never reach the conscience. They could never penetrate in themselves the inner man. They were a means to point forward, a figure, as it says, to the final sacrifice for sin. It says, which stood only, actually the, the words are emphatic, which only stood in meats and drinks and so on, which only stood in things that were external and things that were material. They only stood in that. Right? They themselves could not actually purge the conscience from the guilt of sin and from our dead works, as we'll go on to see later in this chapter. And so he's saying it was the way anticipated. It was all anticipation of what was coming. Let me, um, let me point out one detail here with what time we have. In verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances. I want to draw your attention to the words diverse washings here because this, is, this can be helpful, right? It's, diverse means different kinds, okay, children? So it's saying there's different kinds of washings in these Old Testament ceremonies. But the word washings is actually the word baptisms, right? It's from the, 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 the Greek word baptizo. And so it's saying that, that they only stood in different kinds of baptisms. It's referring to different kinds of baptisms within the Old Testament law. Why is this important? Because some insist that the word baptism, baptizo, means immersion, Right? So our Baptist brethren, they would say that the word baptizo means immersion. And what I want you to see is that that is patently false. In fact, it could not be more false than it is. Why? Because we define our words from Scripture themselves and by comparing Scripture with Scripture and how Scripture itself uses it. And the, what we're learning here in, in verse 10 is that there were in, already in the Old Testament, there were different kinds of ceremonial baptism. So when you get to the New Testament, the idea of baptism didn't drop out of the sky as if it's a foreign concept that no one's ever heard of. If that were the case, when John went out into the wilderness to baptize, the, the Pharisees would have been doing backflips, right? They'd have been screaming bloody murder. What is this innovation, this new thing that we've never heard of or seen before and so on and so forth? No, they were accustomed to different kinds of, of baptisms. But here's the point. The Old Testament never, the Old Testament law never included or required any immersions. 
There are none. In fact, the law knew nothing of even a single immersion, much less, as verse 10 says, diverse kinds of immersions, right? Show me in your Bible where are, there are different kinds of immersions in the Old Testament um, ceremonies. The fact is that immersion is an Old Testament symbol for judgment. That's what it is. Immersion is an Old Testament symbol for judgment. Pharaoh and his army was immersed in the Red Sea. No. These Old Testament baptisms were actually sprinklings. Every last one of them, the different kinds of baptisms, were all sprinklings. So it's actually, he, he alludes to it later in this chapter, and we're running out of time, but verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and, and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. Right? That's a reference to Numbers 19, verses 17 and 18. Or you go to verse 19, where it says, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. You can read about that in Exodus 24, verse 6 and 8. Or you go to verse 21. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. You can read about that in Leviticus 8, verse 19, and, and as we saw in Leviticus 16, uh, verse 14. The Old Testament did have different kinds of, of baptisms. Some of the baptisms were, were with water alone. Some of the baptisms were with water and ash. Some of the baptisms were, were with oil. Some of the baptisms were with blood. There were different kinds of baptisms in the Old Testament ceremonial system. And so the biblical definition of, of baptism is sprinkling, if it's anything. And the mode of baptism in the New Testament, we're told nowhere, anywhere, of there being a record of an alteration in that mode. So something especially for our young people, you know, to understand the biblical basis for why we do what we do, why we believe what we believe. It has to be rooted in the Bible alone, not the traditions of men and what is familiar to them, and so on and so forth. And so here, back to the point, the way anticipated all of these external material things were pointing forward to Christ's more excellent ministry. They're all magnifying. They're all putting the spotlight on. They're all directing attention away from themselves to something far superior, something far greater. Right here you have Christ's perfect, complete, magnificent, excellent ministry over against all the imperfections of the Old Testament ceremonies, their inabilities, their, their temporary nature, and so on and so forth. No, those imperfections are there because they point to that which is perpetual in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think that for the Old Testament saint, in the middle of this whole world that God had appointed for them and created for them, it would, have it would have given new meaning to them more than to us. The language that we sing in Psalm 119 and verse 18, when we say, open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Can you picture the Old Testament believer? Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. All this intricate, ornate, ceremonial uh, legislation that you've given to us by divine appointment, O Lord, Open my eyes. Help me to see in them and see through them wondrous things out of thy law. It applies to more than that. But you can see how, how surely that would have been part of the experience of David and many other, uh, others of the godly. And all of this stood there until the time of reformation. The time of reformation. Right? The time of reformation. The time in which... The Lord set things straight. The new era of the new covenant. The coming of the mediator, the high priest, the sacrifice, all that that entails. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of time as the Son of God incarnate. In order to secure in his gospel way the salvation and redemption of his people. It's to that more excellent ministry 
that the way was anticipated. And it came, my friends, to a culmination. It came to a startling, staggering culmination at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the lamb, the Paschal lamb, the true lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, was finally offered. And what happened on that occasion? After 1,500 years, what happened in those moments on that hill of Calvary? We read in Matthew 27, verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain, from top to bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. There you have it, my friends. That barrier which had stood, which they faced day in and day out for 15 centuries, ripped from top by God to the bottom, thrown open through the death of Jesus Christ, the way into the holiest of all has been flung wide open for God's believing people. And it is to that reality that we will turn by God's grace if we're spared in verse 11 and following. But let me end with this. Does this not speak, you know, the way closed, the way opened, the way anticipated? Does it not speak to the words of our Lord himself when he stood in this world and proclaimed, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. It is only through Christ and his sacrifice and his shed blood that is the way into the presence of the God of glory. May the Lord bless these things to our hearing and stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed is the way, the only way, into thy presence. How thankful we are that the veil has been rent. How thankful we are that access has been granted, that we, even in these moments, collectively as a people, are able in our prayer to find audience with the King of glory, to be brought with our prayers before thy throne, to stand in thy presence. O Lord, we magnify thy glory. How thankful we are for Jesus Christ. What a Savior, the Lamb of God. Grant that he would have all the preeminence among us, that all the glory would be to his great name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.